bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 1st, 2017. We have a particularly excellent podcast for you this week, complete with breaking news. The Senate Finance Committee held a hearing this morning about affordable rental housing, and I have a brief report about what came up during that hearing. But first, our This Day in History segment. 49 years ago today, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968. That bill established Ginnie Mae as well as the Rent Supplement Program. It also continued the shift of federal subsidies away from publicly owned housing toward privately owned housing. Now, let's turn to this week's tax credit news. We have a packed general section this week. I'll talk about the failed effort to repeal parts of Obamacare in the Senate and how that affects Republican approaches to tax reform. I'll then discuss the Senate Finance Committee, as I mentioned earlier, their hearing on affordable housing. From there, I'll talk about fiscal year 2018 appropriations for the Departments of Transportation, Housing and Development, and related agencies. After that, I'll list the HUD and Treasury nominations that were recently voted on to advance. In local housing tax credit news, I'll discuss what California's extended cap-and-trade program could mean for affordable housing. And in New Markets Tax Credit News, I'll share highlights from the New Markets Tax Credit Coalition's report on the importance of the New Market Tax Credit in rural communities. I'll close out with Historic Tax Credit News, where I'll discuss an upcoming deadline for Rhode Island State Historic Tax Credit participants, and how listeners can register for the Novogratik 2017 Historic Tax Credit Conference. If you're ready, let's get started. As you've heard by now, Republican senators last week failed to pass a skinny repeal plan to roll back Obamacare. In the early morning hours on Friday, Senator John McCain of Arizona voted against a GOP bill that would have repealed several parts of the Affordable Care Act. Senator McCain's vote sealed the fate at a vote of 49-51 after Senators Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine voted against the bill earlier. After the bill's defeat, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said it was time to move on. As we've learned over the past few months, efforts to repeal Obamacare may not, though, be completely dead. There's a chance that Republicans will at some point try again to take up the mantle of Obamacare repeal. House Speaker Paul Ryan released a statement Friday saying he was disappointed and frustrated with the health care vote. But given the inability of Senate Republicans to find 50 votes for several pieces of legislation that targeted Obamacare, it doesn't appear likely to be resurrected, at least anytime soon. So, it's widely expected that Republican leaders will now turn their attention to their priority, tax reform. In fact, Speaker Ryan and other Republican leaders in the House, Senate, administration released a joint statement about tax reform last Thursday. Together, they're called the Big Six. That's the group that consists of Speaker Paul Ryan, as I've mentioned, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady, they're the two from the House, 
And then you have Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch, two from the Senate. And then you have Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and White House National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn. Those are the two from the administration. The Big Six said that the House, Senate, and White House are united in their goal of achieving permanent tax reform and will work on a comprehensive tax plan this fall. They said the tax plan would have a lower tax rate for businesses, corporate and pass-through, and provide unprecedented, and that's a quote, unprecedented capital expensing. One thing they didn't mention was any limitation on interest deductibility. Lawmakers will also set aside the controversial border adjustment tax. That's probably the biggest news, is that the border adjustment tax, or the destination-based cash flow tax, appears to be dead. The Big Six said that the House and Senate tax writing committees will draft legislation that will result in the first comprehensive tax reform in a generation. And they expect to do this in regular order. This is likely a nod to the Republicans' struggle to repeal Obamacare without Senate committee consideration. On the topic of tax reform, combined with affordable housing, the Senate Finance Committee held a hearing today on affordable housing and tax reform. The hearing was entitled, America's Affordable Housing Crisis, Challenges and Solutions. There were five witnesses. They were Daniel Garcia Diaz of the U.S. Government Accountability Office. He sort of headed up some of the reviews by the GAO of the Long-Term Tax Credit Program. Then we had Grant Whitaker of the Utah Housing Corporation, and he's the current president of the National Council of State Housing Agencies. And then there was Catherine O'Regan of New York University and a former HUD Assistant Secretary for Policy Development and Research. Fourth, we had Kirk McClure of the University of Kansas and a frequent publisher on research about the long-term housing tax credit. And then we had Granger McDonald of the National Association of Home Builders. Now, I'll have additional commentary on the hearing in next week's podcast, but I did want to give you a brief glimpse of some key points from the hearing today. And it's a bit lengthy, so maybe it's not as brief as I'm suggesting it might be. Also, be on the lookout for a Notes from the Democratic blog post on the hearing. It'll be up on our website soon. The hearing opened with a statement from Daniel Garcia Diaz of the U.S. Government Accountability Office. He discussed the importance of the long housing tax credit program, but he also expressed some concerns, such as the variation among the state housing agencies they surveyed in areas in which they reported compliance violations. He noted the number of compliance reports filed varied from between one or so to 1,700 among housing agencies surveyed. And he said that the IRS does little to assess noncompliance issues that have been reported. He also said that critical data on allocation amounts and certifications was not adequately collected and available. Garcia Diaz did suggest ways to strengthen oversight. He said the IRS should clarify when noncompliance should be reported and that the IRS should ensure reliable data is collected on low-income housing tax credit allocations, as well as their place and service dates. He also said the GAO believes that HUD can be a resource to augment. And I want to emphasize that. He used the word augment. He said HUD could augment IRS oversight of low-income housing tax credit programs. Next, Grant Whitaker testified. He was testifying on behalf of the National Council of State Housing Agencies. And he noted the broad support in the Senate for the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, an act that you know as a listener expands tax credit funding for the 9% allocated credit as well as tax and bond finance transactions. 
Whitaker also explained how great the need for affordable housing is across America, as well as within the state of Utah. He talked about the success of the low income housing tax credit and taxes and bonds nationwide, as well as in Utah as well. And he did ask for expansion of the low income housing tax credit through passage of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act that was introduced by Senator Cantwell and the lead Republican co-sponsor being Senator Hatch. Catherine O'Regan then spoke, she's from NYU, and she provided more details about the affordable housing need in America, and she observed that this is, and I quote, an opportune time to reform and streamline LIHTC. First, she did note that the program could work better in a broader set of markets, including serving lower-income families in rural markets. She noted that income averaging would make this possible or help make it possible, as well as allowing states to increase their maximum basis boost and by broadening the definition of difficult to develop areas to include Indian areas, that all of that would help. Uh, Kathy O'Regan also said that the LHTC could better aid in community revitalization, particularly by prohibiting local veto of housing developments. And she discussed the importance of the housing credit to preservation of housing, and she noted that the 4% floor for tax and bond projects as included in the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act would be helpful in that regard. She also pointed out adverse effects of lower corporate tax rates on low income housing tax credit equity, and she referenced the up to 17% reduction in tax credit equity that could occur. Now, many of our listeners will recognize that 17% estimate, as that comes from Novogratz's study of the effect of tax reform on low income housing tax credit equity. That study, as you know, is available on our website. Next, Kurt McClure spoke. He's from the University of Kansas, and he observed that the low-income housing tax credit is, and I quote, a good program, close quote, but suggested areas for improvement. He suggested that the low-income housing tax credit wasn't serving the lowest income levels, and he suggested that states should focus more on market analysis to better assess the degree of need in a given area. He also suggested allowing states to exchange low-income housing tax credits for vouchers so they could better serve lower-income families. He suggested that rehabilitation should be encouraged in soft rental markets and units or new construction should occur in tight rental markets. And lastly, he observed that there are currently no incentives for mixed-income housing, and he thought there should be. And he went so far as to suggest recommending prohibiting wholly subsidized low-income housing tax credit properties, except in certain narrow situations. The next and final speaker was Granger McDonald, speaking on behalf of the National Association of Home Builders. He noted bipartisan support for the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act and expressed hope that the bill would pass and become law. He noted the bill increases 9% credit funding, as well as would lead to more units being built through tax and bond financing. He commented also on the challenges of building affordable housing in higher income areas. After opening statements, Chairman Orrin Hatch said one of the reasons he supports the local housing tax credit is that it keeps decision making within communities where housing is needed with private sector involvement. Ranking member Wyden noted the reduction in investable dollars by virtue of discussions of a reduction in the corporate tax rate. And he asked, Grant Whitaker for solutions to the problem. Many of our listeners know that Novogratz has developed just such a suggested approach, just such a solution. And that solution or approach is being included in comments to the Senate Finance Committee. 
Now, when his turn came up, Senator Grassley asked the GAO how the lack of data affected the GAO's ability to review the low-income housing tax credit program. The GAO representative observed he was specifically concerned about the lack of data about the dollar allocation per project and place and service dates. He also said that the IRS could not say how many properties were subject to recapture. Overall, he said the basic accountability requirements are missing. Senator Muir Cantwell, who, also as you know, is the lead sponsor of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, when she spoke, she noted 90% of affordable housing comes from the Lungs and Hedgecourt program, so you can't get out of the crisis without increasing funding for the Long Housing Tax Credit. She also noted the reduction in the value of the Long Housing Tax Credit as a consequence of the discussion of lower corporate tax rates. When Johnny Isaacton got a chance to speak and ask questions, he actually observed and linked two programs together. He observed that conservation easements, as well as low-income housing tax credits, both provide private sector incentives to do things that are good. One, conservation easement in terms of preserving historic properties as well as land, and low-income housing tax credit in terms of building and preserving affordable rental housing. He did note they've been attacked, some have questioned their validity, and the country really needs to realize that they are attractive programs. You do need to look at them to ensure they're working as they should, but the country needs to understand how important both those programs are. When she had a chance to ask questions, Senator Stabenow noted that she was looking forward to being a co-sponsor and formally supporting the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. However, she then referenced at least one developer in her state that was using or was accused of using a plan for closure approach to eliminate affordable housing restrictions on a low-income housing tax credit property. Grant Whitaker, in response, noted that the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act would allow state agencies to determine if such a plan for closure was occurring and prevent it. We also had Senator Cassidy on his turn. He was noted the challenge, a challenge many of us in affordable housing have been dealing with for quite a while, of reconciling the goal of helping low-income families as much as possible, along with the desire to increase the number of available low-income units in higher-income areas. Senator Thune asked about the importance of cost recovery. Since so much discussion about tax credits, he asked about the importance of cost recovery as a component in helping raise capital for affordable housing. He also expressed the importance of providing affordable housing in rural areas. He asked about ways to enhance the low-income housing tax credit for rural areas. Granger McDonald, with NAHB, observed in response that Senator Cantwell's bill does have provisions to enhance the financial feasibility of low-income housing tax credit developments in rural areas. I encourage you to go online and take a moment to watch or at least listen to the hearing. I did tweet out a link to the online location of the hearing. Just go to my Twitter feed, at Novogratik. Also, please email cpas at novoco.com with your observations about the hearing. Well, I hope you enjoyed the brief overview that I provided about the affordable housing hearing in the Senate Finance Committee today. Now, in other news, the Senate Appropriations Committee on Thursday unanimously approved fiscal year 2018 funding for the Departments of Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development, and Related Agencies, or THUD. For HUD, it would provide $40.2 billion in net discretionary appropriations. That's about $1.4 billion more than the enacted level for 2017. The bill emphasizes rental assistance and community development. The legislation also 
funds the Community Development Block Grant, HOME, and other programs targeted for elimination or substantial cuts in the President's fiscal year 2018 budget request. For further details, go to the Novogratic blog at www.novoco.com blog. And while we're speaking about HUD, the Senate Banking Committee last week voted favorably on three HUD nominees and one Treasury nominee. The HUD nominees are J. Paul Compton, Jr. for General Counsel, Anna Farias for Assistant Secretary for Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, and Neil Ratcliffe for Assistant Secretary for Community Planning and Development. And the Treasury nominee is Chris Campbell for Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions. Now, if confirmed by the full Senate, Campbell would oversee the CDFI fund. And Campbell was previously Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch's staff director. These nominations now go to the full Senate for consideration. Treasury Assistant Secretary for Tax Policy nominee David Cotter and HUD Deputy Secretary nominee Pam Patnaud are also awaiting confirmation by the full Senate. For the latest updates, follow me on Twitter at Novogratik. In affordable housing news, I have an exciting announcement coming from California, an announcement that could mean more funding for affordable housing. California Governor Jerry Brown recently signed a bill to extend the state's cap-and-trade program through the year 2030 from the original sunset at the end of 2020. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the cap-and-trade program, I suspect you're wondering why this is good news for affordable housing. But bear with me. The program limits greenhouse gas emissions in the state. Companies can buy and sell pollution credits to exceed the cap. Auction proceeds go into a greenhouse gas reduction fund, and 60% of the fund's annual proceeds are earmarked for purposes that include affordable housing and sustainable communities. In essence, extension of the cap-and-trade program preserves for another 10 years an important source of funding for affordable housing. My partner Owen Gray in our San Francisco office notes that the cap-and-trade funds do not specifically target low-income housing tax credit properties. However, low-income housing tax credit properties do qualify. To read more about the bill, go to www.legislature.ca.gov. In community development news, the New Markets Tax Credit Coalition last week released a report on the use of New Markets Tax Credits in rural communities. The report said that during the period of 2003 through 2014, the New Markets Tax Credit generated $11.6 billion in project costs in rural America. The report said that more than 800 businesses, community facilities, and other revitalization projects were financed. Perhaps most importantly, the report said nearly 50,000 full-time jobs were generated and more than 21,000 construction jobs were generated. The coalition highlighted healthcare facilities that were built thanks to the New Markets Tax Credit. Rural residents have higher rates of age-adjusted mortality, disability, and chronic disease than their urban counterparts. They also have less access to healthcare providers. The report said that the New Markets Tax Credit financed 107 rural healthcare facilities or clinics worth nearly $800 million, this all between the years 2003 and 2014. In addition to the report, the New Market Tax Credit Coalition added a new web page that specifically highlights the tax credit success in rural areas. You can find that page at www.nmtccoalition.org. And if you want a copy of the report, you can see it on our website at www.newmarketscredits.com. The report is called Special Report 
new markets tax credit, a big deal for rural America. As a side note, I also want to thank Representative Tom Reed for his op-ed for the Hill publication on the importance of the new markets tax credit in rural communities. Representative Reed is a member of the Tax Writing House Ways and Means Committee. I shared the link to his op-ed on Twitter. In historic tax credit news, I wanted to remind listeners, listeners who work with the Rhode Island Historic Preservation Tax Credit, be it as a developer, investor, sponsor, etc., that they have a form that must be filed soon. The Rhode Island Division of Taxation sent out an email reminder about that last week. Form TC100 is the Tax Credits and Incentive Disclosure Form. It's due August 15th, two weeks from today. Now, whether you have a project in Rhode Island or elsewhere, this is a good reminder that state regulations often differ from federal regulations. If you do have a question about this or have any questions about your historic tax credit development, call my partner Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. Also, the Novogratic 2017 Historic Tax Credit Conference is coming soon. It's September 28th and 29th in Denver, Colorado. The conference includes a panel that's dedicated to state historic tax credits. Please register online for the conference at www.novaco.com events. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. For those of you who are low-compensating tax credit property owners and managers, don't miss the Novogratic online low-compensating tax credit property compliance workshop that's being held next week. The two-day online course will go over issues and trends on which LHCC owners and managers should stay informed. Attendees will have a chance to pass an exam to obtain the Novogratic Property Compliance Certification. The workshop will be next Tuesday and Wednesday, August 8th and 9th. Register today at www.novaco.com training. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.